Hello, hello, boys and girls. This is Startup Hand Me Downs, the podcast that passes insights from founders and thought leaders down to the next generation. I'm Rambe. I'm Phil. And today we're speaking to serial entrepreneur Oleg Gomenko about the inner workings of an entrepreneur's brain, his learnings for his various ventures, and his new startup, Sweatcoin. Yes. Um, so, see, you know, the story actually starts with uh, a couple of things you need to know about me. I think the word entrepreneur, when I was growing, would be synonymous with someone that should be in prison. I was in prison. <laughs> so, entrepreneur as a career wasn't necessarily something that was glamorous. I was I, I, I would consider. I remember vividly seeing first ever ad on TV. It was a bit of a shock. You know, some you know, kind of. It was it was a very very different culture. Everything was effectively run by state, or there were like kind of large state-owned corporations. Being an entrepreneur and actually kind of finding your way through it wasn't encouraged or even existed in the psyche. And um, as such, you know, kind of, I wasn't necessarily kind of even consciously considering that career. But I've always been entrepreneurial in uh, kind of more ways than one in terms of sport, in terms of uh, kind of, you know, how I was studying and uh, what I was doing, we're not going to go into details here. Mm. But um, kind of when I, um, when it came to making my career decisions, um, I was in, uh, I was born in a family of uh, engineers. My father was a um, kind of test pilot, well, test pilot, uh, not a pilot, but test engineer for choppers. Typically, you have a group of two to three people that would man a um, kind of aircraft in testing. So he would be uh, number two, number three. And my mother was specialist in survival complexes. That was her title. And survival complexes were actually weaponry uh, that was hanging off uh, aircraft. So, and I was growing up in this tiny little town that was kind of closed for foreigners and it was center of Russian military aviation with, uh, you know, a lot of technical stuff happening around me and most of my friends uh, ended up being either mathematicians, physicists or developers but you know kind of most people were into science, math, physics and uh, I was supposed to do the same thing and I did but then sort of looking at the crumbling of Soviet Union I've decided actually I'm gonna focus on languages I'd like to see the world and I would see a little bit more than what kind of is happening around here, which wasn't particularly pretty. And uh, um, I've decided that I'm going to go into kind of languages and marketing because that would be the first thing that foreign companies would do when they enter Soviet Union and they're better than that. And when Pepsi uh, opened their office, I joined them. Then there was Mars. And uh, then I kind of left the country and that was the moment when I understood what entrepreneurship is because within large organization you actually had few people that were able to kind of move, invent and kind of do things but fundamentally large companies are just incredibly frustrating for anybody who, who's got this entrepreneurial streak and they were for me and uh, you know I started looking at opportunities and uh, then I realized that on Russian passport, being in Europe, sponsored visas, etc., was not a route that I could possibly pursue. Mm. Then I moved over to the UK, where you know, kind of passport and visa um, situation was uh, a lot better. But it still took me so six years to actually become a citizen when I could start in earnest being an entrepreneur. Because before Russian passport, sponsored visa, I become an entrepreneur. 
you know, after three months, I'm getting deported out of the country. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's not a pretty story. Mm. So very long-winded thing. But, you know, kind of when it came to kind of SMS parking, I was already, you know, kind of, I had quite a lot of marketing and brand experience. I worked for BCG, Boston Consulting Group, in a lot of kind of business uh, kind of strategy stuff. But I was gagging and was really interested in working for myself. The first thing that I did working for myself was actually doing consulting. And I've sold quite a lot of work in uh, uh, consulting work in uh, uh, Russia and in Europe. But um, then mobile um, stopped being just a calls thing and text thing mm -hmm. and WAP appeared. And then those uh, kind of first Windows mobile phones appeared. And I, you know, kind of, I started looking at that and what can be actually done. And parking was one of those most frustrating things because I don't know about you guys, but you know, we all ended up in a situation that you want to park, you even found a parking spot, mm. and then you put your kind of hand in the pocket and you realize you don't have enough change to yeah. pay for it. And then all of a sudden you go, oh my God, I'm gonna have to move, and you know, it's just absolute disaster and nightmare. Mm. So we thought that we should be able to make this work through your mobile phone and even with a just normal feature phone. So we've developed a system where you could simply pay, uh, you know, by texting your registration number to a short code, mm. and you know, you would pay through your phone bill, so through premium SMS, mm. and uh, then parking wardens would be able to actually verify if you paid or not by simply having their mobile device with them and verifying that that you know uh, register um, uh, reg number is in the database and you're within the timeline. So we build that. And I spent six months traveling around Britain talking to councils that are that happen to be the only operators of or most or you know kind of pretty much the only operators of on street parking uh, mm -hmm. spaces. And uh, it didn't really go well because uh, as you can imagine, kind of being uh, councils and yeah. state employed, you know, it was massively risk-averse culture. Mm. What's a telephone? <laughs> no, they all had telephones, but, but you know, kind of the feedback was, oh, this is, this, is, this is totally amazing, but what if grandma that is parking doesn't have a, doesn't have a phone? Well, you still have a machine. This <laughs> yeah. is an addition. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. But have, have you done it? No, that's the reason why I'm here. We'd <laughs> like to be a pilot. Oh, you want us to be first? Uh, let me think. Let me, and, and, and that would go on and on and on for weeks and months. And, uh, you know, called, ultimately we've decided that, you know, kind of, unless it's a commercial company and would actually understand the cost savings versus operating machines and collecting all that cash and, you know, kind of mm. potentially having those machines vandalized, etc. Mm. Uh, you know, it's not going to happen. And uh, unfortunately, we've uh, given up on it. But it was fortunate because I realized that the only people or the first people that managed to do something about it uh, actually did it only by the year 2012, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. So it took a very long time. Well, we've done it in 2004, end of 2004, 2005. Ooh. So way ahead of its uh, yeah, way ahead time. Of How long but did you... Sorry, how long did you actually wait before you actually said, okay, we need to kill this thing? Like, when did you decide? About six months. Six months, okay. I realized that, you know, kind of, I didn't have a kind of a better story and I didn't find a fox. I don't know if you heard the concept, you know, kind of fox is someone in the organization that would actually be quite mm. different and would spearhead your initiative. Mm. 
So, you know, I didn't find anybody that I would kind of go, yeah, that those guys, let's put a little bit of uh, uh, effort into them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was a good idea. I developed the product uh, myself at home. Um, you know, had to learn SQL, PHP, oh, wow. HTML for it, and uh, you know some SMS gateway integrations and stuff. But you know, kind of we put a sticky plaster uh, together with a friend of mine, and uh, you know didn't have an external development resource to uh, to get it going. That taught me that actually, kind of developing product is possible. You don't necessarily need to have a technical team. Mm. Uh, you just have a very, you know, you need to have a very good idea, move fast, and uh, you know, get it out there and pilot. So that was SMS parking. Uh, on the back of that, we've also tested a few other mobile things. There was an SMS uh, VLT, etc. But at that moment of uh, time, I was uh, kind of already thinking sort of bigger, bigger thoughts. I needed to slightly kind of buckle down because you know kind of, I was on a decent visa in the UK I could stay here but I didn't have my British passport mm-hmm. and um, you know I needed to think about that that you know kind of being an entrepreneur with uncertain income and applying you know at the same time for a passport is not something that back then in 2005 would be considered okay uh, mm-hmm. you know right now it's probably going to be worn with pride back then um, you couldn't say that you're an entrepreneur, you effectively were unemployed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, um, you know, kind of I went and did about a year for BT. I wanted to understand the, um, kind of how internet works, the commercials of it, and uh, they also had a fairly interesting role of uh, trying to get them to think in bundles. So how do you sell multiple products at the same time? How do you end up not selling, you know, telephone and broadband and, um, you know, mobile and TV all in different verticals, thinking in a very different way, you know, talking to potentially the same customer about different products and, you know. So um, it was very, very interesting, but, you know, kind of reminded me again why I didn't want to work for a large yeah. company. Yeah. So the day after I got my passport, I resigned and uh, started Bloom. So Bloom was a very old idea. Uh, I actually had that idea in early 2000s, if not even earlier, maybe even 99. Um, you know, peer-to-peer uh, exchange of content, and uh, I was thinking that you know, kind of, we needed to effectively liberate from a centralized model where one party controls everything and basically charges for it and you know get music distribution into you know kind of individual people's hands but not doing it illegally for free but bring the whole network together where everyone is rewarded so you basically reward peer-to-peer behavior by sharing the price of a file or content that is sold in proportion to your contribution in terms of kind of bandwidth so if i downloaded a a song from three people, mm. part of it goes to rights owners, but then there is a distribution chunk that will go to three people. Yeah. So all of a sudden you create an incentive for people to look at their collections as valuable thing as opposed to, you know, kind of <coughs> anyone and everyone I've acquired it for nothing, therefore anyone and everyone should be acquiring it for nothing. Mm. And uh, that was the original idea for Bloom. Then it had to pivot because we didn't want to be legal and labels would never license us. And I spent six years uh, uh, building that, got it to about 
30 people strong team of an amazing product. We started as, uh, we were called Potopi as a project. It was power to people. <coughs> and, uh, you know, but that was sort of project name. Then we, we named ourselves because we were in music and, you know, it was about kind of bringing people together. It was Mflow. And then ultimately we became Bloom FM, which was a streaming service that offered uh, subscription on your mobile to all you can eat catalog for one pound a month, mm. as opposed to ten pounds a month uh, with uh, uh, Spotify. How did you decide on you know, when to pivot, what to pivot to? Was that due to like market feedback or just what you, your instinct? What was it? Um, well, it's a it's combination. Um, you know, I, I don't think that there is a there, there is a recipe. If I you know if I had to write one, two, three, four, um, you you know kind of you see how market responds. And the problem of a lot of entrepreneurs is that you know you have an idea, you have a product, then you get feedback from the market, and you know kind of if you believe the feedback from the market too early then you will never actually be successful because you know for any new idea there will always be enough pushback to you know, kill everyone over mm -hmm. but if you are sticking to your guns for way too long and you're not hearing you know kind of at all then you're also a fairly dumb entrepreneur because then you have <laughs> you know you're not going to have success mm. how do you walk that 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 line um i um you know I think I cannot really give you clear cut answer, but you always have to distance yourself from your idea. Don't think that you, your idea, you are here to solve a problem. Think about it as, you know, I'm not, you know, kind of doing, I don't know, in our case, sweat coin, which is about uh, currency. The reason why we're doing it is because we want to help people being more physically active and therefore happier and therefore you know can have longer life be more productive and get more out of their life if sweatcoin in a year or two year pivots into something completely different and is not necessarily cryptocurrency that's fine because it's a problem that we're focusing on mm. it's the true genuine issue that three out of four of us experience rather than it has to be cryptocurrency backed by physical movement. Mm -hmm. So that's the thing. If you if, if people tell you that there is a better way to solve the problem that you're trying to solve, hear them. Don't change too frequently because otherwise you'll never arrive. But don't change too late <laughs> yeah. because then you'll be dead. Mm -hmm. um, where was it? Uh, no, I think it was Einstein's quote that is very pertinent here, which is, I think, you need to make sure that the thing you do is as simple as it can be, but not a bit simpler. Something <laughs> along those lines. I, like that. Uh, yeah. I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it's... It, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get it. I get Where do you stop? Exactly there. Yeah. Just on the point. So, so point. So it's a black art. There's no kind of science or rules you can put down to it. It's uh, go by feel. 
Um, yeah, it's, it's a, so how would you, what do you do to, to, to grow your, uh, the way you feel this stuff? Is it just experience, doing it again and again? Is that how you learn? Or is it, can you learn by re reading certain books? How did you get that feeling? Um, always have a co-founder and people around you that uh, uh, that you trust because it's not actually a question of you necessarily growing that feeling but it is about you know kind of bringing this feedback and sharing it in a fairly small group um, you know kind of two people is ideal two to three is probably ideal um, because it's you know kind of you will always have a tendency to either go a little bit more or you know can potentially err on the side of uh, caution with these decisions but if there are three people that trust each other and have slightly different backgrounds and you can you know you work well together then at some point you just kind of make a decision and you know kind of penny drops and this solidifies the pivot because everyone just kind of looks at each other and goes yeah mm. you know that that's about right mm. so don't try you know kind of my advice would be and maybe it is wrong advice but that's the way it works for me is uh, sort of communicate make sure that you know it's all very very transparent and if you think it's a time to pivot don't kind of go that's it we're pivoting you know say you know it feels like there is a change needed here mm. and bring your key co-founders or key team uh, together with you and when there is a consensus you know you'll feel like there will be kind of that moment around the table where everyone's just going to say yeah let's run that mm. that's a, it's an interesting point because a lot of the time um, young people feel that a good team is one that you know, doesn't argue with each other sees the same points of view and everything works smoothly but um, what I see that work works best is, you know, with us guys at Sweatcoin, me, you, Anton, uh, a lot of the time we, we disagree on everything. <laughs> but it's collectively we come to the best decision every single time and the decision is so much better than it was, you know, an hour before we started debating about it. Yes, as with my previous point, um, there, is a, there is a golden moment there somewhere, you know, um, how to strike it. Um, is it, 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 it is extremely hard, um, but yeah, you know, kind of. It's like marriage. If you never argue with your wife, then your marriage probably failed many years ago. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, the only people that I I know, you know, work-life balance. Mm -hmm. You know, so. The only people whom I met that had work-life balance were either complete workaholics, and it was clear from a million miles away, and because they were in one extreme, they actually thought that it was fine, mm -hmm. or people who really didn't you know, work much and were at home. The mm -hmm. people that I always thought, you know, or externally had work-life balance are the people that ultimately, when you talked to them about work-life balance, they thought they didn't have it and they struggled with it and it was a very very hard work on a daily basis mm. because balance is hard work have you ever tried to i don't know walk tightrope mm -hmm. it's extremely hard 
work. Mm. And that's the same thing with, um, you know, with work-life balance, and that's the same thing with uh, decision-making. If you really want to walk that line, you just need to know that it's never going to be running 100 miles per hour with your kind of eyes half-closed. You know, at some point, once you worked out your strategy and mm-hmm. once you worked out your kind of business model and, you know, kind of its, it's growth phase, it becomes heck of a lot easier because then all you need to do is really just kind of throw coal into the, you know, into yeah. the oven and just all. But mm-hmm. we're talking about startup, startup, where you're kind of finding your way and it's never very easy. You don't have a, you know, road built. You, you're navigating in, you know, kind of in, in, in woods. Yeah, I like your, um, your uh, metaphor about the dark room. About, oh, no. Yeah. Can you, can you mention it? <laughs> I think you just did. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I alluded to it. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, kind of starting a brand new thing um, is, is like looking for a light switch in a dark room uh, without actually knowing if that switch exists. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, kind of, you, you need to believe it's there because then there will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But... You know, kind of, there's absolutely no guarantee that you will find it, but it, it's, you know, it is a helpful metaphor, I, I find yeah. sometimes. Yeah. Just going back, sorry, to Bloom FM again. <laughs> You've seen your transition, so it's <laughs> not progressive. Sorry. Um, yeah, wait, wait, no, 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 because I just wanted to yeah. touch on a, on a really important yeah. point that I think our users, our listeners yeah. will find useful. So you actually got Bloom FM to 1.2 million yeah. users, yeah. which is very, very impressive. Um, you went to a fundraising round of about 60 million or whatnot. Can you just tell people, what was it, do you think, that got you to 1.2 million? Or was there anything in particular that you did from a marketing point of view? And in terms of raising money, was that was that difficult? Um, you know, we had a bit of a weird situation on uh, money. Um, you know, I spent, um, we started raising money in 2008. If anybody remembers 2008, that was probably the worst Worst. year ever to raise money for legal music service, Um, uh, you know, kind of double whammy. And, uh, you know, we had a very, very good uh, idea and a very, very good team. And, uh, you know, I've spoken to people for six months. And uh, the difference between typical startup and the music startup is you need quite a lot of money up front. Uh, because you actually, if you want to be legal, you need to strike deals and make mm-hmm. sure that uh, um, you know, kind of, it all works uh, legally. And uh, you know, I managed to raise money required for that, uh, but it was from Russia, which you know we'll come to um, later on. Uh, ultimately, this uh, uh, this company was uh, so interested in uh, in the project and the team and in uh, kind of expansion potential that uh, uh, they continued investing into us in subsequent rounds. In fact, um, you know, kind of they told me that uh, you know they had not just preemption right, but they had a uh, you know kind of right of first refusal. And you know, whenever we needed money. Mm-hmm. I had to go to them, and you know, after some negotiation, um, you know, then basically we ended up raising all of that money from one company. Yeah. Uh, it took long time to get there in the first hurdle, but you know, after that, it worked really well. Um, 
So now coming to your question, so how did we get there? Um, it was an amazing crew, absolutely amazing. Uh, it was amazing product that we really spent a lot of time and a lot of thinking on, and not just in terms of functionality, but in terms of design and in terms of interaction. Mm. And uh, you know, kind of, um, I had uh, you know an amazing uh, product team, CTO and design crew. And the whole development team were, you know, kind of absolutely superb. It took a long while, but we got there. Another element was we actually had probably even better catalog that, you know, kind of than Spotify had at that moment of time. We had licensed 30 million tracks uh, by year 2013, end of uh, uh, end of 2013. Mm-hmm. It took, you know, one label took six years. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, you know, kind of, that's a big difference in music space uh, from I think most other startups because uh, you know you really you know you, you, you need to have your catalog uh, legally acquired because otherwise you you know effectively becoming a pirate business and uh, that that's not particularly viable. So. <laughs> Well, you know, kind of, it's, you know, some people say Groove Shark, and they say, well, you know, at least one co-founder found dead under suspicious circumstances. Company has been killed, and Universal Music declared jihad on them. You know, not particularly kind of interesting way of, uh, I think, being an entrepreneur as far as I'm concerned. Mm. So, you know, kind of, it's it's an amazing space, but, you know, it's a very, very complex space, probably the most complex space that I've encountered thus far. So, coming back to the question, product, catalog, and then, um, you know, of course, we, you know, kind of, it, it was a very, very busy space, and uh, we also spent quite a bit of uh, money on marketing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there is a, you know, it's low profitability, but there is a very clear path. You know, kind of, you acquire users, you convert them into paying customers. They have certain lifetime value. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of, it's a, you know, fairly well understood uh, model. Mm-hmm. So we were growing uh, and growing rather rapidly, and you know, kind of, we we also had a genuine differentiation. You know, one pound a month versus ten pounds a month is a kind of um, is a very very big difference. Mm-hmm. Hundred twenty quid a year is yeah. you know two and a half times more than average Breton ever spent on music, and that ever happened somewhere around I think two thousand three, two thousand four, I think or mm-hmm. something like that. So the peak of music industry. Um, you know, 12 quid a year, which was our entry product, you know, is a very yeah. palatable price yeah. for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And um, so, after um, what happened at the end of um, your journey with LumaFem, and then how did you uh, progress with uh, your next idea? Um, so, I raised money from Russia. Uh, but not just from Russia, we actually raised it from Gazprom, which is Russian gas monopoly. Mm. And uh, Ukraine, Crimea happened. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, some people on our investor side has changed and it became politically impossible to sustain 
investment at the level that was required mm -hmm. and uh, you know our countries instead of uh, you know very warm relationships uh, you know they frosted up so basically my investor walked and uh, it was a fairly big operation and finding investment or replace an investor of this size mm. uh, just didn't happen mm. you know there were a lot of other kind of small issues and small things, but kind of fundamentally um, it's geopolitics that blindsided us. And that's another lesson that I would, uh, you know, want to put forward to, uh, you know, people who want to be an entrepreneur. Um, uh, there are known unknowns and there are unknown unknowns, mm -hmm. you know, kind of you just need to be aware that there are unknown unknowns and they are the ones that most likely is going to kill you. but just acknowledge that, park it, and not worry about them. If you constantly worry about them, then you're probably not a start, uh, entrepreneur material. If you don't know about them, then you're probably gonna, you know, kind of really, really struggle when, you know, kind of when that happens. Mm -hmm. So it's just one of those risks that you accept. Mm -hmm. And then what led you on in the next few months after that to get back up and start Sweatcoin? Well, as I mentioned very early on, I went for a run. Um, you know, kind of bloom a fan, uh, and my job of uh, having to get all the licensing sorted resulted in uh, me not going to gym much, not exercising an awful lot. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, then all of a sudden, I had quite a lot more time, and I lived next to Richmond Park, and uh, I just went for a run, and uh, you know, kind of endorphins kicked in, and uh, you know, I, I. I just loved it. And at the same time, I was looking at blockchain technology, which I find unbelievably fascinating and, you know, kind of one of the biggest innovations that I think hit us uh, in the last 10 years. Uh, you know, I would argue that it's probably the biggest internet in terms of the impact that's going to have on us over, you know, kind of next mm. 20 to 30 years. And I was toying with that space and looking at, you know, kind of what what can I do, um, you know, kind of, if, if I were to go back, you know, uh, in, in the blockchain space. And combination of the two, and my conversation with uh, um, Anton, um, who was really kind of interested and keen on the fintech space, mm. uh, resulted in uh, kind of that aha moment when I realized that actually the two and two go extremely well together. Um, the aha moment was, you know, the mining in blockchain space, uh, in blockchain, you're familiar with that? Mm -hmm. So basically it's a very energy consuming process of calculating lots and lots of hashes. And in order to get different hash from almost the same body of text, you need to change at least one number. That number is called nonce and it, and it changes. It's an integer. It goes 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and then it goes sometimes trillions of times until you stumble across the, the hash that is required. Mm. So I was thinking that is there a way to potentially stop changing that integer, that nonce, just on a you know, push from CPU and burning electricity, but can you link it to proven physical activity, like can you put a pedometer effectively mm. into the process and make bitcoins mined on the basis of proven physical activity. 
you know, it's proven to be a, you know, kind of uh, a difficult idea to execute because you need to do it on mobile, battery life, bandwidth consumption, etc. Mm. But when I shared that idea with Anton and with others, they, you know, kind of, they, 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 they loved it. And that's how the coin bit appeared in our name. And, um, yeah, the rest is history. Here we are. Super. So we'll go on to our last few closing questions. Um, so you've had a lot of experience prior to starting up your first business with the consultancy and uh, the branding and marketing work. How important is that experience for you? And would you recommend uh, young people like us to get experience in a large company before uh, starting off on by ourselves? Or just going, you know, when you've got an idea, just go for it. I think best thing to to learn is by doing, and uh, I would say, you know, you have to live your own dream as opposed to live dreams of others. Mm. And uh, you know, I would be a strong advocate of uh, just go and do it straight away, as early as you have a calling. Don't wait for it. Don't trust anyone that yeah, a couple of years of being this and doing that is going to help you. Well, if you want to be an entrepreneur and you don't have your bright idea, then at least go and work for a startup. Mm. You know, kind of be in the environment, learn how it works, you know, and work for a company that you would want to build yourself in the future. Um, you know, going and working for a large company you are likely to fall into a classical trap that, you know, I think does exist in Britain called property ladder. You know, you go and you get your income and then all of a sudden everyone's pushing you the property ladder and then you go on the property ladder and then you have that mortgage and that is a minimum that you need to earn on a monthly basis and who is going to be taking risk mm. if you actually need to have that steady income. So, you know, kind of, it doesn't necessarily breed you know, kind of adventurous uh, entrepreneurs uh, jumping on a property ladder. So, you know, try to go before you get hooked into all of this, uh, all of this thing. Yeah, that's good yeah. advice. Um, I guess if you could go back, is there anything that you would change? I would definitely start heck of a lot earlier um, in terms of working for myself and uh, developing my own business. Hmm. You know, I think I spent quite too long in uh, large corporate. Interesting. Interesting. You Valuable experience definitely shaped me, definitely gave me a lot of network and connections, etc. But I think that you know, can, if you've got a dream and you've got that energy and you've got that sort of desire and you've straighted in kind of large organization, just go and do it. You know, kind of what's the worst that can happen? You're actually going to know that you're not an entrepreneur. You can go back to a large company and actually feel extremely happy because you now know that this is your place to be rather than having that what-if scenario bugging you in the background. Mm -hmm. So get it out of your system. And if you are an entrepreneur, brilliant. You know, kind of better for all of us. Super. And as a closing question, um, if you could have any three qualities from uh, entrepreneurs or leaders around the world to take for yourself, what three would they be? He's thinking, by the way, guys. <laughs> <laughs> We're still here. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
I think it is um, kind of, you know, I wouldn't call it seeing the future, anticipating the future, but, uh, you know, kind of charting the, the path and allocating resources uh, clearer. And I can see, you know, kind of, uh, that would probably be a characteristic I would put to Elon, Elon Musk. Mm. Right. And um, do you think he plots the future, or he just finds an idea really cool and goes for that? No, I think that what he does is he allocates resources very efficiently mm -hmm. to get to a solution, and that's what I mean. Kind of plots the future. There are so many. There is a there is a multitude of ways to get to any point. But then there is a shortest path, and with the benefit of hindsight, you always know. Once you got to a point, you always know what was the shortest path, and that's the thing that I would love to have. You know, kind of better selection of that path. I know the place, and I know how to get there. I wouldn't say that I always chosen the most optimal path. You know, and he is striking me as a guy that you know, kind of with very, very big decisions with massive investments. You know, it 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 is probably one of his skills or gifts that he's got is to find very quickly the the shortest path to his mm -hmm. uh, uh, to his goal. Yeah. So he doesn't fumble around a lot. That's. It's not only that. No, I think that. It's uh, it's it's not about fumbling and it's not about speed. It is about you know kind of focusing on the shortest possible trajectory to get you to goal. Not this way, not that that way. Sorry, I'm I'm drawing kind of circles around here, but a straight line. Mm -hmm. And um, so having a vision of a point in the future is not enough. It's mm -hmm. the path to that future that mm -hmm. matters. And you know kind of having that CRISPR would be the, the only thing that I would ask for. I don't think that I need two and three, to be honest. I would put two and three into just that one. Cool. Good. That, that's a very interesting one. I haven't yeah. thought of that before. Yeah, I never thought about that either. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's perfect. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for coming down. Yeah, that's the episode. Thanks for coming down. Hope you uh, yeah, found this useful. Uh, and very Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> Thanks. Cheers, guys. That was another episode of Startup Hand-Me-Downs. Uh, join us uh, next week for another episode. Uh, so again, have a nice Christmas.